Today, let's ask the question, did the Genesis creation account happen in seven literal days? Today, I'm having a really fun, really exciting conversation with my friend, Andrew Seagrest. I call him Siggy. Everyone kind of knows him as Siggy. And we're talking about this young earth, old earth creationism idea. Was the earth created in seven literal days? Well, technically it's six literal days of actual creating. But the Genesis account in chapter one and chapter two, uh, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas and opinions on these things. And so I know some people are like, well, obviously young earth, or maybe you're saying obviously old earth. Uh, I hope that this discussion is encouraging for you because this is like the most kind, um, just like a very fun, normal, not aggressive, non, it is confrontational in the fact that we're openly disagreeing, but like not rude or cruel or mean disagreement, just like very nice, regular, conversations. So I really hope that that's encouraging. So if you're thinking like, oh gosh, I don't want to listen to two people fight on the internet or have this debate, this is not a debate. I will link some if you want to listen to debates on creationism. Uh, honestly, I just recommend that you go to the Unbelievable podcast by Justin Brierley. He has quite a few different choices on this topic between atheists and Christians, Christians and Christians. So uh, I'll link a couple of those below. But for the most part, this is this is me asking Siggy his opinions about this because he puts a lot of time and effort into making sure he knows what he believes and why he believes it, which is the whole point of this podcast. So that's why I wanted to ask him because he actually used to be old earth and he's moved into young earth creationism, which I learned in this podcast. And I, for the majority of my life was young earth and I've kind of moved more into the old earth theology. Uh, as I'll explain briefly, it's really not based on science at all. As you'll see, I'm not scientifically inclined. I could not tell you a lot of details about dinosaurs or geology or, uh, you know, the ice ages, but it's really proper exegesis of the text. And what I hope you get out of this conversation is that whatever side you land on, it's not a litmus test if you're a real Christian, first of all. Um, we talk about some views that we really feel push the line uh, too far that are, you know, move into the heretical territory, that because they cha would change the nature of the character of God, or um, like we talk about the biblical understanding of soul and that kind of thing. But for the most part, this is a really friendly discussion um, between two people with opposing views who both see the beautiful, deep symbolism and meaning in the Genesis creation account. And we both really believe it and really believe that it's meaningful and important. So, I, I hope that this is just a fun conversation to listen to. If you stick around until the end, I'm going to share a bunch of notes because we talked for like two hours and I barely got to the notes and I just briefly touched on them really quickly so we could discuss them and wrap everything up. So I'm going to uh, share them, share some links and share some more specific things. Uh, I'll mention it like seven times, the Bible Projects. Uh, there are a few podcasts and they have some videos and some more in-depth notes and things like that on creation. And that has really, really been a huge help for me to understand it in a deeper, more meaningful way. So uh, definitely check them out. But if you want some more, stick around to the end and I'll share those things. All right, here's the episode. Hey, Siggy, how's it going? Hey, how's it going, Carly? It's good. I guess I should clarify because I'll introduce on my intro that you're Andrew Segrist, but everybody calls you Siggy. So that's Clarification. Yeah, that has uh, become quite the prolific nickname. And I'm sure it will probably be with you until, you know, death at this point. <laughs> yes, I fully expect my tombstone to say Siggy. <laughs> 
that's actually, I would as well. I would as well. <laughs> also, we were, we just started, uh, we just opened a new Zoom tab and your photo, I'm so glad that that's your photo and you were <laughs> telling me it's your a previous Halloween costume, but you don't have video, so we get to see Siggy Halloween whatever year. Yeah, this is how all the people at work think I look because this is on my Slack and on my work Zoom and everything. So uh, yeah, when people come into the office, they just pass right past me. That is, did you dye your hair? I'm looking at it now. Yes, yeah, I have an emover <laughs> and um, I dyed the hair. It, well, it was a really funny story. So they dyed it too far up on my head. So when I had my hair cut after the costume, they couldn't cut it all out without making my hair ultra short. So I looked like a Backstreet Boy for like a month. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that makes it even better. Mason, when he grew his hair back after chemo, he grew it out blonde. Like it, it came back like super fine and blonde. And then it grew out like now it's like super long and curly. But for like probably three or four months he had it came back brown after that so he had just like blonde tips and people were like oh wow so you're dying your hair that's so great it's <laughs> <laughs> like oh no just weird nature um wow so many things to think about that we just opened with but today we are asking the question was well here's the thing I said was was a creation story did it happen in seven days technically it would be six days as we'll see as we go through hey, day rest. seven counts man you gotta count that yeah it's i mean it's i count my rest days exactly and so we're asking are they literal 24-hour periods were there seven of them is there you know there's there's a lot of views as we'll see um i think because i grew up on the young earth side uh, and have been most of my life and still kind of am. And I'm, there's, I have so many, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll talk about it all, but uh, I didn't really realize there were so many nuances and like pretty much an infinite amount of different, uh, different beliefs and different kind of theories and uh, people all across kind of a spectrum of young earth, old earth and everything in between. So would you, would you say that you're on the young earth side of the spectrum? Yes, definitely. Okay. And I pretty recently have kind of been a little bit older. <laughs> um, I know some people are like, Bleep, goodbye, because they're like a real Christian. And that's like the litmus test to be a real Christian. Oh, boy. Hopefully that's not, uh, hopefully that's not your view. Or maybe that this will just compel you to ask questions about that. But um, yeah, I mean, the purpose of this whole thing is to just compel you to, to ask questions and read Genesis and uh, some commentaries and hopefully different resources about it. But we'll start with you uh, kind of sharing your view on creation. Also, before we start, I have to say I was, I'm super excited about this conversation because this topic interests me so much. I think it's so fascinating. It makes me like giddy excited because I'm just so fascinated by it. But when I was first um, messaging you to ask you if you'd be interested in doing this, because we were going to do a podcast about like spiritual questions and things like that, and somebody dropped out and they they never responded to do this one and blah, blah, blah. And so I was saying, I was going to have this conversation with like an old earther and I sent that to you and I don't remember what you said. <laughs> you were like, oh boy, an old earther or something like that. And I meant to say young earther, not realizing that I had like misspoken and you not realizing that I was kind right, of on right. the older side and it made me laugh so hard and I was like this is so funny and I'm so excited for this now so I'm excited on a lot of levels but um this should be interesting I'm I'm, I'm excited as well yeah 
I think, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I could talk for an hour about this. So I'll let you start and kind of share your, your view in a, you know, kind of a condensed version and we'll get into kind of the details of that. Okay. So uh, I believe that the first verse in, in Genesis, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, is a summary verse and then the rest of the chapter falls off of that it, it it expounds on it's basically like a thesis and then the rest of it explains kind of how it occurred as opposed to i know various um various other people believe that uh it's either there's a gap there or, or you know there were millions of years possibly in between or or whatever uh, I believe that that is simply a, a summary, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and let me tell you how. Um, and so I believe in a literal seven days of creation six, but I, like I said, I like to count my rests, uh, though my work doesn't necessarily, you know, comport with that. But anyway, uh, um, I believe in a literal six or seven days of creation and that the, um, you know, morning and evening, the first day, blah, 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 is, is actually 24 hours, which is, I, well, we will get into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, on, I don't think this question is in here, and if it is, then I won't uh, repeat it. But do you, well, I, I think by what you just said, it answers my question, but do you see any conflict between Genesis 1 and 2 in the sense of like, they're not on the same like day or what would your, what would you explain like exegesis wise of Genesis two? Well, not exegesis wise, but how would you, some people say there's discrepancies. What would you say? Um, so the, I, I think, again, this is a, simply an expansion of, of the sixth day, right? So uh, on the, the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve, right? Um, according to, to, uh, Genesis one, it says, uh, he created male and female, he created them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I think that chapter two goes into more detail on this and, and there there's the account is more expanded. There's more information here. And I think that the, um, the account from chapter one is just simply a very, a very quick, this is what he did on day six, just like all the other one through five, right? He made, he made the, the animals of the sea. He made the animals of the land. He made men and women. And then because we are men and women, and that might be a little bit more important to us, the author then goes into a little bit more detail about how this occurred. And then you know, obviously, you know, that leads directly into the fall, right? Right. Okay, that makes sense. What, based on your view, what is your your estimate or the estimate, I guess, that you would agree with that of how old the Earth is? Um. So I I have not. I will admit I have not done the math myself. Uh, but you can trace a fairly reasonably uh, strict timeline of years between. Uh, I believe David is a good anchor point because we know when his kingdom was and you can trace back uh, with the genealogies that they have. But I've heard estimates between seven and 12,000 years. 7,000 seems a little low to me, but again, I haven't actually done the math myself uh, because that seems like an arduous process. Yeah. I've heard different 
different versions as well. So if you, you know, if it's seven days, then that makes sense that it would just be, you could, you could trace it back from the flood or Abraham or whatever. Um, so that makes sense. I think, I think that's pretty typical of, I, I could be totally wrong. I am really not academically inclined and I'm definitely not scientifically inclined in any way. So the, a lot of the science of this, it's like, I really try to soak it in, but it phases me a lot. But, um, I think that most people, evolutionists, non-evolutionists would agree that humanity started like 10 to 12,000 years ago. I think no matter what, like, like fully developed homo sapiens, if you're an evolutionist or whatever. Right. Um, but I don't know, I wouldn't, I couldn't tell you like what the like answers in Genesis would say or something, but I'm sure it's like six or seven, I think is what a lot of people land on. Yeah. Uh, again, you, you know, most of that comes from a strict reading of the Bible and, and just following the genealogies, right? And, right. and you, there are chapters in the Bible that very few people read that, you know, so-and-so had so-and-so and he lived so many years and then he died. And then, you know, the, the one interesting one that you get to is so-and-so, you, you, you know, is uh, uh, Enoch had Methuselah and he was no more because God took him away. And that's kind of cool because, you know, Everybody else dies. Right. <laughs> That's Mason's favorite Bible character just for that reason. <laughs> um, yeah, there I would have to I'd have to look it up. I'm sure you can search a bunch of people's different uh, theories on that. So what I'm sure that we're gonna jump around and like come back as we as we kind of go through this. So I'm trying not to like get ahead of anything. but what would you say, we'll start out what is the best argument? and you can expand i put single argument but you can kind of expand like if there's quite a few major arguments or points that really support the young earth creationist view that you have come to believe. okay so i want to answer this in three parts okay uh so the first would be the best argument i've heard to support creationism as a whole just that yeah. the the lack of evolution right that that the universe was created. And that would be the column cosmological argument put forth by William C Lane Craig. Um, uh, excuse me, Dr. William Lane Craig. Anyway, um, he, he posits just a very simple syllogism. Uh, so the first two uh, are premises that are difficult to argue with. And then the third is a conclusion based off of those two premises, right? So the first is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And we see this in the world, right? You don't worry about things appearing out of thin air completely uncaused because it doesn't happen. That's not how life is. Um, so that's fairly readily observable uh, from the universe. And then uh, the second uh, uh, assumption here is that the universe began to exist uh, well accepted by uh, evolutionary scientists or and and Christians alike, right? I mean, for Christians, it's easy. In the beginning, God created, right? It seems like a beginning. And uh, evolutionists, it gets a little bit more complicated. But everybody believes that the universe has a, has a beginning, began to exist. And therefore, the, the conclusion you draw from those two assumptions is that the universe must have a cause. If everything that began to exist has a cause and the universe was one of those things that began to exist, then it follows that it must have a cause. And, uh, you know, there are other people who have posited non-God causers of the universe, but there's as much evidence for that 
as there is for God, which is, you know, none. So <laughs> like hard evidence, if, we, if we're talking that that way, if you're looking only strictly at, at, at facts and those kinds of things, there's no evidence for a, for a, a non-God universe causer either. So, uh, so that would be the, the single best argument I've heard to support creationism. Uh, the single best argument I've heard to, uh, so the second thing I want to answer is, uh, do I, why do I believe that young earth creationism is biblical, is what the Bible teaches? And um, that I would go to, so the Hebrew word for day in Genesis chapter one. Uh, so uh, verse four, uh, God saw the light was good. He separated the light from darkness. Verse five, God, God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. That word day is yom in, in Hebrew. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly because I'm not Hebrew, but you know. Uh, but that is the word. It is a very general word for day. It's used as the day of the Lord and all that stuff that means thousands of years. It is true. However, in the Hebrew language, in every example that we have of the Hebrew language, when day is classified with evening and morning, it only ever means 24 hours. That is the only thing it ever means in the Hebrew language when it is paired with morning and evening. Uh, so I believe that biblically, the Bible is telling us that it is 24 hours, which gets a little weird because God doesn't like create the earth, like, you know, the stars until later and so like how do we have a revolution of the earth around its axis if we don't have stars gets a little weird but essentially this is this is what i believe the bible is teaching us and then finally the best argument from a secular point of view that i've read to uh support young earth creationism it probably goes with i'd probably go with glacier girl uh so there was a uh, there was a flight of um P-38 Lightnings in World War II that were flying from the U.S. to England because, you know, they needed airplanes in England because, you know, they had a German problem. Uh, so they were flying there and they had engine trouble and the whole squadron had to land in Greenland, which, as you can imagine, is not a great place for you to just leave aircraft lying around. And uh, they said, look, we've got other stuff to do. We, we can't, you know, send a repair crew to Greenland and start repairing, you know, for one squadron of planes. It's not worth it. We'll just make more, you know, and they just sent a ship for the pilots, right? And so they said, we'll come back and get them later. And they, they did get to them later, but it was like 30 years later. And so they, they were obviously covered in ice, but they knew exactly where they were because they knew where they went down. And so they found them and they were under hundreds and hundreds of layers of ice. Which, is, which flies in the face of the idea that ice cores, you can drill into uh, Antarctica and find ice cores and each lens is a year. Well, that is obviously false because they were under hundreds of layers of ice and it had only been 30 years. And so they, they discovered that ice cores don't build up the way they thought they did, right? So the uniformitarianism that, um, that evolution is really built upon doesn't seem to hold a whole lot of water. That's a very good answer. This is, <laughs> this is why I'm very glad that this is, uh, at least for this conversation, maybe it, at some point I'll have a conversation with someone who is much more educated than myself on old earth creationism. But I, I feel like it's very important to have 
even if if you're not a scholar yourself to have some kind of like scholarly level arguments to lean on and kind of know a lot of um a lot of the reasons that you believe what you believe so i'm very glad uh that you have like a thoroughly researched answer for all of these things um that is that's very fascinating and very compelling i have to say very compelling well you know me i like to have answers to stuff yeah which is great which i i think a lot of people are starting to like ask questions and be like wait a second i don't even think i have an answer for this and it's like something kind of fundamental to their beliefs not that this is necessarily fundamental i guess some people might say that it is but um i think it's important to have at least something you know at least read genesis a couple times and know why you have yeah i think we should have reasons to believe what we believe rather than just because of what i was told because yeah. that a lot of people believe a lot of bad just awful things because that's what they were told definitely and it's yeah, there's a lot of complications that come with that when you have a belief system, especially something like Christianity, where it's like this living faith that really affects all areas of your life. And if you take it seriously, like as, you know, as a learner, as a disciple of Jesus, then it, it really affects a lot of your life decisions. So I think that makes it also really important to know a lot of these supporting evidences. And in this age where everybody wants to fight about everything, especially on social media, where we're like, I'll defend the truth of God, but also I'm going to use like super degrading and horrible language. And I'm going to yell at people that I don't even know. And then it's like, but they don't even have like a great case a lot of the times for what they believe. It's just kind of joining the, uh, you know, joining a cause almost. Yeah, I agree. I, I, my greatest fear, because I was raised in a Christian home, right, my greatest uh, annoyance is when people just assume that I be I believe in, in God because I was told that. Yeah. And I just, that bothers me because I've, I'm not a scholarly person, but I've done a fair amount of research as to why I believe what I believe. And not that I necessarily need recognition for that, but I just don't like the assumption. Yeah. That totally makes sense. I think, yeah, I was gonna like add a thought, but I feel like that was that was a really good, <laughs> a really good um, answer. And I think a lot of people are kind of in that boat of of, you know, they have kind of believed things just because that was what they were brought up with, or they just never. It's not even that they don't believe anymore. It's just that they would really like some some supporting evidences as to why for me when I when I came to this just questions about it I I really strongly started out like a six-day <laughs> six-day literal creationist person and it's it's not even something that I totally reject it's for me like as I said I'm really not great with understanding the a lot of the full see I can't even put it into words I don't understand science or math very well so this is it's difficult for me to come and look at these evidences because it seems that there's a lot of compelling evidence at least in my mind and understanding on both sides like when I listen to a creationist debate I'm like both of you have great points and the scientific evidence is really hard for me to interpret so it wasn't really that it for me it was how do we best um how do we best interpret Genesis 1 for what it is, like more of an exegesis coming to the text. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that may be, it differs from a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of people in that though, but I, I know a lot of the people that I listen to who are on the older side would 
are more compelled by um, the age of the earth and they feel that it can't, for whatever reason, be younger than however many millions of years or um, they're old earth creationists who believe in evolution or something of that nature, mm-hmm. um, which I don't believe, but uh, it seems like there's just people all over the board, you know? There's there's this whole spectrum of people on, on both sides, which is interesting right. to no, the I don't mean to disparage what you believe at all. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you and, and what you have have studied and, and understand for yourself. Um, but this is, you know, where I'm coming from. Oh, no, totally. And I'm, I think it's so great. Like, f- the way that I like to make uh, a decision on what I believe is to make the best compelling argument for one side and the best compelling argument for the other. So like I said, a lot of nuances in between, but for the most part, um, you know, there's some major ideas on both sides that you're going to agree with or not. So this is, I think this is uh, very interesting and very compelling for me to learn from. And and like I said, I, I mean, we grew up at the same church for a while and I grew up only only learning the older side of things. So I'm pretty familiar with a lot of older theories and arguments and things like that. But um, I think now I'm just paying attention a lot more. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot more interesting to me now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, that uh, I, I think it's important, even if you do, you're not going to switch sides, I think it's important to know both sides of the argument because otherwise yeah. you just believe what you believe out of ignorance. Like that's not great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think too, it strengthen it only strengthens your argument to know your the opposing view so um yeah so not that i'm looking to strengthen my view i'm i'm genuinely like i don't know i could land on one side tomorrow or the other i i really am very open to it but uh yeah i i again i'm gonna go on forever so i'll try to jump to the next question so i at least keep us sort of on track but um on that same kind of vein of thought of you know the best supporting arguments are there any that you've heard for old earth creationism that you felt are very compelling or um, are strong or maybe hard to dispute or has, has anything like that come up for you? So I know that this is a, uh, this is a logical fallacy, uh, the fallacy, uh, uh, the appeal to authority, but there are a lot of very, very smart people who look at the world and say that this has got to be millions of years old. And uh, so there's this, and I don't know if we're going to circle back around to this, um, but there's this kind of an answer that young earth creationists give, which is true, but sounds like a cop-out. Uh, and that is that, that God created the earth with the appearance of age. And that really sounds like a cop-out, right? Like, because, you know, God did this to test us or something. But, but if you think about it really hard, even the main line that if you just take the story from Genesis 1 at face value, you believe in the appearance of age because God did not create Adam as an embryo, right? He created a man, right? And he didn't create Eve as an embryo, you know, she didn't grow up, right? And so while Adam, the, you know, the, the moment after God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being, he appeared to be at least an adult, right? But though he was literally seconds old, he appeared to be an adult. He had the appearance of age, right? God didn't plant seeds and wait for trees to grow. He made trees, right? They had the appearance of age. And so the 
idea there is that the world was created in the same manner with the appearance of being old. The problem with that is it's a cop-out, right? That sounds like a cop-out. And even though it's a reasonable thing that you can read from directly from the text, I the, the it doesn't feel great to say that. <laughs> Does yeah, that make that's, sense? That's a really good explanation, though, because I don't know that I've heard anyone give an explanation for, uh, like, like at using Adam as an example of like, oh, he was a fully formed man. I've never, I've never actually heard that, which I feel like is a, a pretty good, um, piece of scripture to point to to say, you know, if you if you believe in the appearance of age. So that is really interesting. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, again, because as soon as you say that to somebody who isn't a creationist at all, they kind of roll their eyes at you like you're, yeah. you're making exceptions, right? And, and, and rightfully so, rightfully so. So this is why I qualify that with the example of Adam and the trees, and the, you know, all the stuff. The, yeah. the, the Bible actually strictly says, you know, the appearance of age, not in that those words, but. Right. Way. Yeah, I think <laughs> this is going to make everybody, <laughs> I feel like on every side, angry. So clutch your pearls, everyone. But I think uh, in the same vein of that, I I feel pretty, like, I believe doctrine is very important and theology are, are, like, very important to me, which is why it's important to hear a lot of perspectives and sides and see the evidences and those kinds of things for me. Um, but there is this part of me that, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, I'm sure. But like I said, a big part of this for me has been exegesis and understanding like, what is Genesis 1 intended to be by the author and how should we interpret it in that light? And so, um, so I think sometimes when I come to this, it feels like I really want to take the message that I'm supposed to from this, which I hope at the end of this that everybody can take out of this is that there's a lot of beauty, especially when we compare this to other ancient creation narratives. The beauty of Genesis 1 through 3 is like a very stark contrast to those. And it shows like God's goodness. And like, so, there's so much beauty in these first three chapters. Mm -hmm. And so that's the most important thing for me out of this. And so there's at the end of the day, like tomorrow, if, if an evolutionist came to me again, I don't, that's not a, a belief system that I subscribe to, but if someone came to me tomorrow and said, it's undisputed, we have like videotape evidence from millions of years ago, we, no one can dispute that the earth is millions of years old or evolution happened. I, I don't think that it would change my faith. And I, I also understand that sounds like a cop-out and that sounds like a cop-out to people on both sides sometimes, but I think it's, I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead of the conversation um but it's kind of that that whole uh the way that i've been trying to come to genesis kind of thing but i definitely understand that like it i i'm trying to be as honest and real about my understanding of these things but i think to some people it sounds like well you're just gonna believe you know you're gonna make it fit however you want it to which is ironic because i'm trying to not make it fit into my narrative or box but really like make my narrative fit whatever the text is but I think that it really seems like that to some people like you know you're just gonna you're just gonna make the bible or your beliefs about the bible fit into whatever you can't deny or something like that right right of course well I, let, let me give you an example uh to to go along with what you said I don't believe uh in aliens right I don't believe the aliens because and that goes right along with creation right like I mean if God had to create life uh, you know 
then I don't believe that he created life in, in, in a different place. If tomorrow, you know, UFOs were to like abduct me and, you know, take me to the leader or whatever, I, th th that's not going to blow up my faith in the Bible because the Bible doesn't say there are no aliens. It's just what I infer from the Bible, right? And so I inferred incorrectly. I'm sorry, right? Like I'm human. That's how yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I And and I know that that's, uh, that's frustrating. But at some point as well, and, and um, in that line of thought, there's, you do have to kind of, well, I guess you don't have to. It's not like you have to register to be a, a creationist or a uh, evolutionist or you or a young earth or older earth but you do kind of at some point like take your ideas and form them on one side or the other but I think it's that um you know there's some things that it when you really start to dig into them and when you really start to understand them and you apply like cultural and historical perspective to them then it's really clear to understand what's happening and then there's some things like this that feel a little bit more ambiguous I think some people would disagree and be like no it's really not at all but um I think there's just maybe more of a more of a I can't think of the word but like a a looseness of holding things that I have now not in that I don't believe they're not true I still believe the inerrancy of scripture it's just that it's more of like I probably could be wrong on some things like I don't think I'm gonna get to heaven and God will be like you did it. You cracked the code. <laughs> You're the one. Good job. Because I'm like, I'm a, just a random person and I'm 26 and I have very small amounts of actual formal education. So I just feel like, not that that's the determining factor, but I just feel like I maybe have a little more openness to being wrong on some things. Yeah, I, I've definitely uh, become a lot less rigid in my, uh, and a lot less, um, for lack of a better word, arrogant in, in the way that I approach scripture, because, uh, you know, there's this old joke that when I, before I went to Bible school, I knew all of everything that the Bible said. And it's amazing how much my uh, instructors learned in the years that I was there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but really, uh, I have come to realize how uh, flawed my uh, understanding is. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's just part of being human, part of growing yeah. I remember being like 16 and being like, mm -mm, I have it all figured out. <laughs> it's like grown adults who are debating. Why are they even debating? Because <laughs> I know even, I mean, <laughs> 16 plus to many, many years, but, um, oh, see, I'm still like that. <laughs> it's, there's a lot too that I'm like, oh, I am not an ancient Israelite. So there's some learning that I have to do <laughs> to kind of put myself yeah. into this mindset. Um, they, I used to intern at this church in California and the pastor's father had written a bunch of books about um about revelation and like a lot of theories that he had on the day of the Lord and these end time theories uh and he passed away and at his funeral they made this joke that like it's so it's so great that he finally gets to meet Jesus because he can tell him how it all happens at the end <laughs> it was so, so funny ah, I laughed that a lot um anyways yeah that's I, I hope that if people get nothing else out of any of this, maybe, um, maybe that that's something that they can take away kind of, uh, this, those things that we're both learning and hopefully everyone's learning as we, as we go through this, but, um, okay, well, that's really, these are all so interesting. I'm, I'm learning so many things through this. So one thing that I thought of as I was like 
as I've been thinking about this and as I've been kind of like making the arguments for both sides that I do think is relevant, I don't think it makes or breaks a case either way, but I think is interesting that I haven't heard a lot of people discuss is how Genesis 1 through 3 was communicated to the author. And I don't know if you attribute, you know, mosaic authorship or, or whatever um, theory about that, but what, do you have any thoughts about this? Maybe it's, I'm, it's obviously not relevant to a lot of people, but I think it's fascinating. To yeah, think. obviously whoever wrote it wasn't there, right? Uh, because no one was, at least in the first couple of verses, no one was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so obviously uh, it had to be some sort of divine revelation. Um, and I do, uh, I don't uh, subscribe to the JDP, you know, theory. Uh, so I do ascribe mosaic authorship. And I think the most likely place for Moses to have received this information is on Mount Sinai. But then again, okay. you know, I again, I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, interesting. And will you, for people who don't know, will you explain that that theory? That oh, okay. So the JDP theory is the this idea that the Pentateuch was written by uh, four or five different authors, and there's like they they split along like verses, and and they're like this verse was written by this author, and that verse was written by that author, and like like they you know like a kidnapping note they clip pieces out and made one book right or you know five um but the the theory is that there are various authors whose works have all been stitched together into the pentateuch and i i don't subscribe to that it, it doesn't there's a there's a great argument uh against that in the bible knowledge commentary that goes on and on for pages and i i read it and I was like, yeah, I know, I get all this stuff. Why, why, why am I learning all this? And then I realized that the JDB theory is like a big deal, right? And I was, oh, oh, I, I was learning it because it was important. Got it. <laughs> that is, I'm, I'm looking that up right now so I can just read that um, later because I never have. Uh, yeah, I've heard. I'm trying to think of. It's called the Christian History Podcast, which I really want every single person to listen to because I think it's like the most wonderful podcast it's so boring <laughs> to a lot of people like it's if you listen to it you'll understand it's not actually boring I just think people think of that because it's like one guy talking he doesn't have guests and he's just he puts so much time and work into um into like really understanding one topic so sorry I have to plug in my computer really fast Just interrupted our the middle of our conversation. I suppose this is my podcast, yeah. Let me uh make sure that I'm all good before I sit down. Um anyways, this guy, so the Christian history podcast, he he puts together like just fascinating, really in-depth podcasts that are like 30 minutes to an hour long. And he'll do like, how was the King James Bible um like how was it curated? What was like the whole, and he will go in like serious depth. I think it's amazing. It has, it seems like it has very little followers and I, he keeps making it, which I'm so glad, but I like want everyone in the world to listen. So that he keeps doing it, but he had some really fascinating ones where he, and he doesn't give any, like any commentary or any personal opinion. He just is like, here's five different theories on this one thing. Hmm. Um, Can you send so that information to me? Because that does sound interesting. Yeah, it's 
It's so interesting. So he did one on like different theories of the authorship authorship of Genesis. And I know that there's quite a few different kind of versions of that theory. So I remember one specifically, and I don't know that there was a lot of like physical evidence for it. It was just kind of people kind of like trying to stitch together this, you know, if this is true, then these are kind of the steps that would take for it to be true. And one of them was that um, among those like different authors, they, there were some kind of cuneiform tablets. And so those were like passed down. Um, what do you think about the theory of oral tradition? Do you think that's possible that it was passed down to Moses? Or do you think it was just kind of like, uh, it, it had to be some kind of supernatural vision? Well, at some point, God told someone something because, uh, again, you know, the first half of Genesis 1, there were no people for to, to witness, right? So at some point, either, you know, God told, you know, and I suppose it's possible that God told Adam, who told people, who told, you know, whoever wrote it. Um, so I, I, I can't necessarily dispute that, but it the, Occam's razor kind of, you know, would seem to indicate a single author who received divine inspiration directly. Yeah, that's another, another thing I've been interested in is looking at, and, and I don't even have an answer or anything like compelling to say about it, but um, I really love Tim Mackey's stuff and, and the Bible Project stuff and their, their podcast. And it has really opened questions to me or or just to think about maybe biblical authorship in a new way. Again, I still believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Um, but I think I've thought about it in a different way of this isn't like a magical book that fell from the sky, which is obvious. Like not a <laughs> lot of people think that. But in my head, that was kind of how I thought about it. Like, oh, it just was like there. Or like, Moses put a pen in his hand and the Holy Spirit just drew on the page, you know, like something like that. And so understanding like, oh no, they're like specific people who seem to be kind of like chosen for this purpose of, of documenting, you know, the history of ancient Israel. There's all these different forms of, um, you know, this ancient Jewish text. And then later this, you know, the, the story of Jesus and um, the letters from the apostles, but kind of understanding it just in a more like <laughs> a more full view of scripture, which I'm sure a lot of other people do, but it just took me a while to realize like, oh, some of this is historical narrative. A lot of it, like almost a third of it is poetry. And then there's these prophetic books. And like, I, I understand that, but to realize like, oh, I'm reading someone else's mail. Like when I'm reading these <laughs> letters to the or like, this is, um, you know, prose discourse. And like, what is that? Elements have really helped me just, just like appreciate scripture more, I guess. Um, I think for me, the only thing that, that seems, I don't even know how to phrase what I'm saying. I think the only thing for me that seems like it doesn't fit with the supernatural vision kind of, or, or revelation kind of idea is that it seems like when people, if, if it was a vision, if, if Moses like had a vision and then saw this, uh, you know, like the order of creation and these things, it seems like in other places in scripture, when people, ha when a prophet has a vision, 
or someone has a vision, it's, it's documented. And then it's kind of explained as a vision that, I mean, that's a really not like a solid argument for anything to stand on. It could be, um, the writing it's true. Style. Uh, it's true. A lot of that is written uh, from the first person perspective, right? When when Isaiah is is saying, "Well, I saw this and I saw that," right? And and and, yeah. and you know, this is what happened to me, right? Um, but that could simply be writing style, uh, right? yeah. Because we know that the writing styles of authors are preserved. Uh, in yep. fact, you can you can read. Um, you know, uh, uh, Paul. This sounds like Paul, right? And and uh, so and people believe that the that Paul was the author of Hebrews because it's a lot of passages in Hebrews sound like Paul. Um, and so it's possible that that Moses just didn't like writing in the first person. Right. And if you if your you know your theory is um, on track at all that it was like Mount Sinai, then I guess it would make sense that it would be just kind of included, you know, in the in that whole you know, time yeah. spent there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, I actually have it in the notes here, that whole like cuneiform tablet um, theory. If you want to look into it, it's Percy J. Wiseman was the first, or at least as far as I can tell um, from really trying to find more info on this, at least one of the first. And he wrote a book in 1936 um, called The New Discoveries in Babylonia about Genesis. And he, you know, proposed that theory there was like this cuneiform tablet thing and they were passed down and then maybe they were transferred to um, some other kind of form of documentation or tradition or something like that. Um, but there's, if you just search like anything along these lines, you'll, you'll find a lot of different. Uh, this seems like a very niche thing. I, you should be able to pull some information out of Google with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. In very interesting. Okay. This is a question that I, have a hard time understanding as far as any argument goes. Where, as far as the timeline goes, where do you believe the dinosaurs fit in, the ice ages? Where does all of this fit? Did they? All right, you know, so here's where I lose uh, science people. Uh, this is 100% where, where science people say that this guy is off his rocker and, uh, you know, and, and shut your podcast off. So I, I apologize for this in advance. But, um, I believe that dinosaurs coexisted with humans uh, for well, a couple of specific reasons. Uh, there have been fossils found with um, some sort of uh, like a, a raptor-like footprint, like you know, like like the three toes, the one claw, the big like looks like a really big bir bird's foot, right? Those footprints have been found with human footprints inside the fossil like inside them as though somebody was you know as a joke was trying to follow in the footsteps of one of these things that had run off right and uh presumably run off or it would eat it um and that that how how does that happen right like they would the 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 clay would have to be wet at the same time for both of those impressions to have been made and you know Clay is not going to stay muddy for millions of years, and if it did, it wouldn't retain the footprint of the the original animal millions of years, right? So the only way for that to have happened is for it to have happened in a relatively short amount of time. And I mean, we're talking ge geologically speaking that we're talking about the same time, right? <laughs> because uh, you, you don't have you don't have space for millions of years here. Yeah, 
I have, I have like pretty much no, <laughs> no ideas or theories. I'm, this is something I'm very curious about, but I've heard a lot of, uh, a lot of very strong arguments similar to that, that it seems like no matter what, it seems like there has to be some kind of kind of overlap here. Um, but then again, I, I there's very smart believers who I've heard argue that you know there's there's this whole timeline over millions of years and all these different um, different ages and things of that nature. But yeah, it seems it seems like there's some pretty sufficient evidence to back up to back up your idea. Well, I I generally like that to be the case. Yeah, that's, that checks out. Um, I think what this is the next question and it actually kind of fits into this question is there's a theory called the gap theory. Now, what's interesting is I heard this explained in a very different way the first time than I did the second time. So I guess within the gap theory, there's quite a few different theories of what that even means. The first time I heard it explained, and uh, maybe I just didn't fully understand it, but I was reading the Epic of Eden by Dr. Sandra Richter, um, which I recommend all the time. Very, very good book. Um, she explained it as there was like this supernatural war that happened prior to creation because in Genesis 1, we see the two Hebrew words, tohu, vavohu, which is, um, again, I'm also probably not uh, explaining any of this, not explaining any of this, pronouncing any of this well, um, at, even though I'm really trying to get the Hebrew pronunciation right, but it's a lot of back of the throat stuff that I just am not at yet. But those two words mean like, like wild and waste or chaos and desolation. And so the idea was that that is kind of the result of like this chaos that has formed this like wasteland is the result of this um, supernatural war that happened. So it was kind of like the fall of Satan and all these things happened prior. And then God took this chaotic mess and then he created the world out of it. Um, so that was the first way I heard it explained. And then the second, time that I like looked into it there's this whole other theory or maybe some people fit those two together somehow but that there's this gap theory that there's these pre-evolutionary human species so they're not fully evolved homo sapiens but they're you know like in the process of evolving but they don't yet have souls so at some point God created you know over however many millions of years God created uh like different elements of you know the earth and those formed and then these species started evolving humans were one of them and they didn't have souls until they were fully developed as homo sapiens and then that's when the fall of man happened which is wild um the thing that i really am i like i said many times don't find a lot of compelling evidence for evolution scientifically again not the person to ask, but my concern is exegesis-wise, I don't think there's a way for evolution to fit in uh, to scripture, even with an old creationist view. Um, but I, I think that my biggest problem with this is, as I've begun the long journey, which I'm sure will take me until I die, but trying to start to learn Hebrew, um, there's a word study that you can look at, um, Tim Mackey actually from the Bible Project has a really in-depth uh, couple of like podcast episodes. And I think he has a video about the word soul and it's in Hebrew, it's nefesh. And we kind of think of soul in this Greek way. Like we take a lot of the Greek philosophers ideas about souls and we right. think about like, like the Disney movie soul. I've never seen it, but I guess it's kind of similar to like 
the LDS religious tradition of like, you're like a spirit baby. And then you just like find a body and, um, you know, you're just like this little spirit, like trapped inside of a body. But when we look at scripture and we, when we look at the word nefesh, it's like being an embodied soul is part of being a soul. So I think besides the fact that I, <laughs> I don't agree with the evolutionary side of this, I don't think a biblical understanding of being like an embodied soul and your body being a part of your soul and what that means. It's very, very complex. Um, but I don't, that, that just, there's a lot of, a lot of contradictions that I see with that. As far as the supernatural war goes, um, I, I think it's hard to pin a timeline to a lot of things that we have very small details about, yeah. but, um, there's a lot of possibilities. Well, so there's a couple of things to unpack there. One, uh, as far as what you said about the soul and being embodied, being integral, integral to being a soul, it, it uh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you consider, you know, after the resurrection, right, uh, there's a resurrected body, right? It's not just, we're not just disembodied souls floating around, right? There's a resurrected body. So that's, so, you know, that's a, a thing. And uh, I imagine it wouldn't be a thing if it weren't important. But again, mere speculation. Um, as far as the pre-Adamic race, which is how I've heard it described, a pre-Adamic race, and then they describe uh, when, you know, God formed man out of the dust of the earth, they, they, that's metaphorically he formed the, you know, the, the, you know, homo sapien sapien out of this Neolithic whatever, and then breathed into him and, and, and gave him a soul, right? And he became a living being. Um, I suppose you could read it that way. I, seems like you're making a mountain out of a molehill, but it, it's possible. Um, as far as the, you know, the, 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 war that included the fall of satan and that kind of thing uh there's very little evidence for that in scripture um at the end of genesis one god looks at all he created and calls it very good uh which doesn't seem to necessarily comport with a war that left the earth devastated that god then had to rebuild but uh um, but he, it, it says that God in, in, in verse 31 of chapter one, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And as one of our teachers is so fond of saying all means all, and that's all, all means. So if God saw all that he had made and it was all very good, then it would imply that the fall had not occurred yet of Satan or of humanity at the time of the writing of, or at the time, not the time of the writing, the time of the viewpoint of verse 31 of chapter one. Yeah. I recently heard another interesting theory about, um, it's, I, I'm going to quote them in reference to Bible project a million times because I learned so much from them, but they have a, a few interesting episodes on Elohim and what that means. And it's, um, Elohim is a, a word that we see used for God by Israel when they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't want to use his name, like his personal name. Um, but Elohim is actually also used for like what we would consider like angelic beings. And so they have this really interesting series on Elohim and that there's 
uh, some people hold to this idea that when God, there must have been, the theory is that there must have been some kind of war like this that we kind of see described in uh, some of the prophetic books that happened um, after the fall of man, I, I believe after the flood, or there's some different variations of it. And then when God set um, different like Elohim, it, or it seems, or different like lesser Elohim than him, obviously, but like angelic beings of some kind over these different regions, like we see in Genesis, then maybe that has something to do with it. And that's why there's these kind of evil nations, because they follow these like evil Elohim that they believe are these false deities. So there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of uh, theories within that as well. A lot of, a lot of variations and a lot of um, different evidences that people will use. Sometimes people use the same evidences to make totally different arguments, which I always find very fascinating. Yes, I always find that quite, quite funny when that occurs. Yeah, I feel like that's, whenever I hear a debate about Calvinism, I'm like, you guys are using the same verses, <laughs> <laughs> the same ones. Um, yeah, this, there's so many, so many things to think about. I love looking at these things and I love, I very much put a high regard on like doctrine and theology and those things and, and really properly understanding scripture. I think it's so interesting to kind of see all these different views or like, especially when you start looking at rabbinic tradition and kind of like the creative things that people came up with. It's, there's just some things that aren't, uh, a lot of things that really are essential to like the doctrine of salvation and um, of our of our faith that I think are just kind of fun and interesting to speculate on sometimes because there's some interesting things. Now there's some, I feel like this is a lot of heresy, so I would not say that that's like fun to speculate about, but there's just, um, there's just so much here. Like God is just so complex and, you know, we, as much as we can try to understand about him, we just, we really can <laughs> nail all the details down. So it's just not even close. Just so fascinating. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, I, I really want to look into the whole, the dinosaurs. Oh, what about as far as ice ages go? How does that kind of fit into things? Uh, so actually, I believe that much of what people believe to be an ice age would have been the flood. Um, okay. It would cause very similar things geologically to occur. Um, and it would explain a lot of very weird um, uh, shifts in where water was and that kind of thing obviously okay um and so i believe that that is it, it's a combination of that and um just a misunderstanding of uniformitarianism okay interesting what about uh, and like not really an important factor but do you have any opinions on how how much time passed because that's another theory that people have is like how much time passed between the creation of man and the fall and i've heard people say well maybe it was you know maybe it was millions of years so he created adam and eve but they weren't fully formed and so they evolved and you know like there's whole there's all these different theories or some people think you know it was just a matter of a few days so what do you have any strong opinions on that i don't uh i know myself and i know it would have taken me about you know 30 seconds to mess up but uh you know uh the bible doesn't say right so it could have been a day it could have been an hour we don't know yeah what 
if anything has shifted for you over time views on creation wise has anything majorly changed or any even even just small details of understanding like the historical text better things like that um, that have changed or has it been pretty static I changed to this view, actually. I used to think that people were nuts for thinking that dinosaurs and man existed at the same time. Um, I used to believe that, um, I, I, I used to be a lot more rigid in my beliefs, um, as we've already discussed. But yeah, that's the main one, is I used to think that people were were nuts to believe that dinosaurs and, and, and humans existed at the same time. So did, in that uh, belief, did you think they were, like, before before man was created, there was just, like, a gap, or? Yeah, yeah, I, um, I believed that the, that there was a gap between the days, right, that the days weren't necessarily uh, 24 hours, and so I, I kind of moved the other direction on you. <laughs> um, I moved towards yeah. being more young Earth. Okay, interesting. Um, what? Well, this is going to be a longer question. because It's just going to be longer. Uh, do you think Genesis 1 to 2 could be poetic in part or whole? Um, and what are what are the main reasons not? This is the view that I hold. So like I said, um, I, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. So I don't think that this, a lot of people come to this and they say, oh, old earth or so you like, just don't believe, you know, you don't believe the Bible then. <laughs> or like, it starts to become like, oh, well, you're taking your own interpretations on Genesis one. So that means you can just take your own interpretations on any passage in scripture. And um, like I said, I think really understanding what kind of literature we're reading is a very big part of properly interpreting scripture. And then also how we interpret it and how that fits into the whole, uh, the whole story of the Bible, how that all points to Jesus and all these different things within that. And so that's, that's the main thing that's changed for me is, uh, understanding it more as poetry and I'll, I'll kind of go into it, um, a little bit more, but I would love to hear why that's not your. Well, I actually not. do believe that Genesis one and two are poetry. They're, they're very poetic and as how you read them, right? Uh, but I also believe that the narrative espoused within them is is literal, right? Um, so I I believe that stuff can do two things. Um, uh, it seems like there isn't uh, poetry that I read in the rest of scripture that gives a narrative that is not true. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of poetry that I read in the rest of scripture that gives a narrative at all, but that, that which does is... The, the narrative is also purported to be true um, or, or specifically meant to be understood as a story, right? Like, so Jesus' parables, obviously, he was telling a story, right? The, the, the kingdom of God, God is like such and such a thing. And everybody knew that he's not actually putting forth the narrative, right? Um, but the rest of the poetry that I read in the Bible that does carry a narrative with it is all true. So... I have no reason to suspect that Genesis would be otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think what has compelled me the most to believe um, that it is that, I know this seems like super confusing to some, some people, um, but that it is inerrant, like, so it is true, but also poetic is that 
it's intended to be poetry, if that makes sense. So it's not intended to be like a videotape recording of it. But the most compelling thing for me, as far as that goes, is like I said before, really seeing the the beauty in it, which we'll talk about in a moment here. Um, and you can kind of, you know, talk about like the, the, there's just so much happening here and it shows so much about God and his intention for humanity. Like there's so many incredible things that we see here. So seeing that and seeing that that's the main important thing that I need to take out of this, but also looking at other creation, like ancient creative creation narratives has really been compelling to me. I don't think at, at the same time, I don't think that we should look at like either science or look at like outside uh, biblical sources to say that this determines our biblical view or another. I think for me, it's, you know, I, I'm pretty strong on like sola scriptura and like, I really believe that um, what I need to know about it within it. But at the same time, I also need to understand like ancient Jewish literature and uh, some of like, you know, when you're reading the parables of Jesus, like it really helps to understand the cultural setting of this because then the widow and the judge and, um, you know, the parable about the the bridesmaids with the oil and all of these things, it makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I'm kind of in that weird, <laughs> that weird place, I guess. But I have, uh, I'll just, I'll try to read through these notes really quickly so then you can um, share your thoughts and we can go to the last couple of questions here. But some of the, if, if you're interested in this at all, or if this is compelling, even if this is a belief that you hold, um, it is really fascinating to look at these because we can learn a lot about them um, symbolically when we compare them to scripture. And we see the stark contrast of the God of Israel with the the gods of these other nations, these, you know, these um, false deities. So like the Bab Babylonian creation account, um, you can actually read it. You can search the Enuma Elish, which means the seven tablets of creation. And um, you can see that there's a, kind of like the similar state where things start. This is pretty common in a lot of ancient narratives. Um, there were kind of, there was like this chaos that was happening. There's water. There's these two gods um, who were uh, like one was a salt water and one was a fresh water god and they basically um, like reproduced and, and their children were like these gods that created the world and um, it's interesting because they're dated prior to the oldest document that we have at least at least that we found um, of the Hebrew Bible there's some different uh there's some things that they found, like I know they found the Shema prayer, like on like a shard of pottery or something that dates far, far beyond what they found of like the earliest manuscripts and copies of the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, we're looking at like 1200 BC. Um, and a lot of these Babylonian and Mesopotamian creation narratives are quite a few years older, like 1750 BC. Some of them go back uh, even farther. So I know that that scares a lot of people um, because they're like, is the Bible just a copy of these things yet then? And I think, no, I don't think it's a copy of these things just because it was written later. To me, what I'm seeing here is the author of Genesis making a stark contrast to these other creation narratives. Like mm. God is one singular God and he's morally good and righteous and he doesn't create chaos and disorder. He takes 
chaos and disorder and creates something good and, and creates order. And um, the way that he places a lot of emphasis on um, humans being made in his image and what that means and the equality of marriage and all of these different things, I think that's very meaningful. And so my understanding of it would be that uh, not like a rival of other ancient texts, but an ancient text with a lot of similar themes that says, hey, I know you have this creation narrative about all of these that, uh, <laughs> like, it seems like they're made out of these weird situations. And a lot of times the way that humans are formed is out of like bloodshed or war or some just weird sex thing. And actually what we're seeing from God is the total opposite of that. Now, does that mean that Genesis 1 isn't historical narrative? No, it's just something that has compelled me, I think, to believe that a little bit more. Mm. Um, I have times of notes, but I'll let you respond because I know <laughs> I could go on and on. Uh, no, I, th I think that's very uh, interesting. I know that obviously Paul did the same thing, right? When he was in Athens, he said, why? I looked around and I saw that you have a statue to an unknown God, right? Just in case you missed one. Well, I, I know about him and I want to tell you about him, right? And so he took them from where they were and he used that where they were to explain who God is, right? And so I think taking, you know, a creation narrative uh, that, that people would already be familiar with and flipping it on its head or, or you know, showing the contrast between that and, and, you know, the God who created heaven and earth, that I think is a, is a very beautiful thing. I think that's amazing. Yeah. And, and I don't think either it has to be mutually exclusive to believing in old earth creationism or something or that it's, you know, Genesis 1 is poetry. I just, I think that's something that like, uh, is not, I found is not talked in a lot of Christian circles that I've been a part of, I think because of that kind of fear of like, oh my gosh, there's all these ancient stories. And if this is older than scripture and it has these weird elements that are similar, then that means it's all not true or something. And I, I, I think that's a fear that's not rooted in anything solid. Uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of symbolism and meaning that we can find in these stories. So I'll read a, I'll read a couple more of these notes and people can um, I have so many notes here, so I'll try not to read them all, but you can look these up if this is something that interests you. So, uh, like I said, that was um, the Enuma Elish, so you can just search that and read it. It's like, it's not very long. Uh, there's the Me Mesopotamian uh, creation stories. There's a lot of variations, and there's a lot of changes in some of the stories over time, but you can look at the Babylonian creation narrative. It paints kind of a similar chaotic state prior to creation. Instead of this one all-powerful God who's in control of everything, he's not created, he's ruling other over other lesser divine beings, it, there's, there's not anyone there. There's nothing, nothing's formed, nothing's put into motion. So there's, uh, there's another water element there, and these waters are divided, they form two gods, and they give birth to younger gods. And like a lot of these stories, there's a war, there's murder, there's betrayal. Um, one of the gods forms she takes all these like forces of chaos and she tries to harm the other gods and they uh there's this this hero marduk who he kills this evil god and he uses her dead corpse to give birth to the tigris and the euphrates euphrates river and then he uses her blood uh, actually the blood of another treasonous god to make humans as subjects and helpers so i think all of that's really meaningful because if you think of yourself as being an ancient person who believes that creation narrative like, what would you think of yourselves? And also, what would you think of other people? Like, mm -hmm. how would that, 
how would that change how you interact with others instead of seeing them as fellow image bearers of God and also seeing this whole Genesis story where instead of destroying humans because of their sin, God is making a way for humans to be reunited with him despite their sin by giving himself as, uh, well, in the Old Testament, it's, it's different, but ultimately pointing to Jesus where we see him giving himself as his ultimate sacrifice. That's so different than this. Like that would frame your whole worldview totally different. And it also, um, I think the way that we can look at the, uh, the Genesis account, the biblical account is, is so different. And actually, um, the Canaanite version of the story is very similar, except Baal is, is kind of like the Marduk character. Uh, you can look up the Sumerian myth, Enlil and Nilil, and basically humans are created as slaves to the gods out of bloodshed again. The gods dislike them. There's a flood story. And uh, again, really similar elements. You can look up the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, the earliest copies are around, well, there's there's some cuneiform tablets and uh, some older copies, they believe, but we're looking around 2150 to 1400 BC. There's later variations are such a big gap because there's different versions that were made and copied of this, but it's a Sumerian myth. Um, this is interesting. So there was the king of Eduk. They believe, a lot of scholars believe he kind of like mythologized himself. So he was kind of like this Gilgamesh character. And he's a king who loses his best friend and he goes on this quest to find eternal life. This is so interesting. So there's like a plant that he has to find to restore. Um, you can find it to like restore your youth, like kind of almost this plant that gives eternal life in a sense, but it's stolen by a serpent who eats it. And so uh, it's like this whole story, basically the moral is like, it's about the journey, not the destination. And he, he doesn't find eternal life, but it's just interesting that those elements are included. Um, Egyptian creation myth, pretty similar. Uh, a lot of these, you can look at the, um, it's called the World History Encyclopedia. And there's this author named Joshua J. Mark, and he writes a lot of different stories about these. So if you um, search him and you search some of these narratives, you'll find these articles there. Um, yeah, I'll share a few. I'll share a few more notes, but I don't want to like totally monopolize all this time. So I'll let you um, jump in if you have anything to add as I go through these. Well, I think that you know, it's reading all these. It's very interesting. A lot of these have flood stories, uh, uh, and and you know, these things they they're not all exactly the same, but they do tend to have similar similar notes in them. And I think that's very interesting. Uh, all of these seem very brutal uh, compared to, you know, God forming man out of the dust of the earth. Um, yeah. And it just, I, I like the, the contrast that, that's being drawn here between the God of yeah. creation and, and all of these other gods. Um, it is it is interesting. And anybody who says that that the beginning of Genesis isn't poetry and isn't beautiful, they're just not reading it closely enough. They're, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's interesting the kind of like primordial chaotic waters is interesting to me. That's kind of um, how it starts similarly throughout these. And I think too, what's interesting is that although there's like, you can read um, different rabbinic texts and like the Midrash and all these different things. And some of them have different variations of like Hebrew stories. 
it's interesting that a lot of these change or are adapted or kind of like stolen by other cultures and then made into what they want them to be. And we see also kind of the opposite with the God of Israel and this, you know, the Hebrew Bible. And um, it, a lot of people will say, like a lot of historians will say, oh, well, that's what the Bible is. Like they just stole, they stole the idea of hell from the Egyptians and they kind of stole this idea from the Babylonians about creation and, you know, this whole story and they took different elements of it. Um, obviously, I don't believe that's true, but it's interesting that the Bible isn't really, you know, is, is the same <laughs> as we see it in uh, the time that it was written. And, and there's a lot of these stories that have changed in many ways or have been, you know, changed by the decade. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very fascinating. These are, again, like just, just search ancient creation myths because you'll find a ton of these. Uh, you can look up actually. Uh, Mesopotamian creation myths. It's an article by Iris Barr from the Met Museum, um, and they have just a ton. She kind of summarizes a different, uh, just small versions of each of these. Uh, the creation story of the Egyptians, there's, a, the Egyptian civilization lasted so long that there's a lot of different changes to this, and also when um, the pharaoh Akhenaten came into power, he and his wife changed the Egyptian mythology to be one singular god. And so that changed things and then it ended up going back um, just a few later. But um, basically there was this god named Atun. He, he rose out of these chaotic primordial waters and he, different variations again, <laughs> the uh, least weird one is that he reproduced with his own shadow and he created these two children. Wait, wait that's the least weird one? That was the least weird one. <laughs> Take some time. They're how, very odd. How, um, how? Never mind. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Don't want to know. He somehow has two children. <laughs> and so um, they run away. He finds them. His tears created humanity, but the people had nowhere to live. So his children, they reproduced and they created uh, not gods or people, but they created the earth and the sky somehow because he disapproved of the sibling marriage thing. But the one was already pregnant with the five other gods, and so she gave birth to them. They, those gods created a whole nother mythology. We're looking at um, like Isis and Osiris and all that. There's a sun god, Ra, who brings the sun every day. Sometimes he's swallowed and rebirthed daily <laughs> at sunrise, because that's how birth works. And then um, he constantly has to destroy the powers of darkness. So there's these a lot of depictions of him, but one specific one where he's like sailing the sun in, he sails and he like wears it on his, on his head. And uh, he has to defeat a serpent. That's, that's like a big part of the story that he has to kill this serpent that is this demon and that represents, represents chaos. And his name is Apep or sometimes Apopis or um, Apepe, <laughs> his name changes uh, throughout history. And, um, there, we don't have time to get into this, which I wish that we could, and maybe maybe we'll come back to it another time. But there's this goddess, um, Newt. She acts as the dome who's uh, around the earth. There's this whole other theory that is also very compelling to me on Genesis about this kind of uh, like the dome um, in a lot of ancient belief systems that surrounds the earth. Like they believe that uh, there was something solid holding up water somehow above the earth. So she's the goddess of that. Um, I, there's so many things here that I, I'll, I'll save for another time because we just don't have time to get into it. But, um, the point well, of this thing, that is a theory, the water canopy, right? And that would be, yeah, 
you know, what brought the flood and that, I, and oh boy, that, that's a whole, we spent like a week in, in doctrine class on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many things that just, oh, so interesting. Um, it, that's, you can just, you can just search, uh, you can look at like help, uh, what is it? Help Bible studies or, um, help word studies. I mean, or, um, if you use Bible gateway, they now have like a Hebrew and Greek feature where you can study the Hebrew words. If I always recommend, if you're going to study Hebrew and Greek, learn from like an actual ancient Hebrew or Greek <laughs> professor or someone because it doesn't yeah. help if you have the, the background to understand it, but you can look at, um, the word to home, um, you can look at the, where it says water above rakia, like the vault, what does that mean? And you can kind of dig into that theory a little bit more. Um, and I'll just list off some resources here because we just won't be able to get to this all. Uh, if you want to hear an opposing view of someone who doesn't think that the ancient people believed into this firmament, then you can look up Justin Taylor's article called Stop Saying the Ancient Israelites Believed in the Sky, Believed the Sky Was a Big Solid Dome with the Heavenly Sea Above It. By Justin Taylor. Oh, that's um, a very that's a very on the nose title. Yes, it is. <laughs> he discusses interpreting Eden by Vern uh, Pothris, which is something you could also read. The Geoscience Research Institute article, "The Myth of the Solid Heavenly Dome," another look at the Hebrew Rakia by Richard M. Davidson and Randall W. Yonker. Uh, the Wabash Center has an article from wabashcenter.wabash.edu called "The Common Cosmology of the Ancient World." Institute for Biblical and Scientific Studies, uh, an article called Genesis 1, 9 through 13, day three, pillars of the earth. The Torah, uh, it's so fascinating to look at what historically rabbis have said and even what modern rabbis interpret about the Hebrew Bible. Um, the Torah.com, there's an article, My Encounter with the Firmament by Oren Fass, uh, Dr. Oren Fass. And you can go to Blue Letter Bible and do a Hebrew word study on Rakia. Um, I wish we had seven hours to talk about all of that, but uh, all of that, all of those things to say, all those creation stories and narratives that you can look into and um, really dive into, uh, I think that, again, it's it, it's pointing to God and, and whatever you believe about the poetic nature or the narrative nature or the coexistence of both of those in Genesis 1 and 2, um, I think that we really need to pay attention to the story that God is telling us and that's being told about him and his relationship with people, especially, and taking this chaos and confusion and formless waste and separating the waters, um, which were commonly associated with chaos in ancient texts, especially in scripture, actually. Mm -hmm. And he creates life-sustaining conditions. He creates order, this whole idea of the nefesh, the souls, and what that is. And you know what's fascinating? Again, totally another conversation. <laughs> Um, nefesh, it's used to, to refer to people, but it's actually also used um, for like animals and nefesh in the sea, nefesh on the land, when God created humans, nefesh, and that the difference isn't the soul, but the difference is God creating people in his image and what that means and like what God's intentions are for humanity. So I kind of talked about this, but a big part of my not even like change in beliefs, but like just deeply, deeply appreciating this and having, honestly, it's like changed my life to see it this way is to understand all of those things I just talked about, but also God's intention for humanity to like be in this 
this good garden setting where he had a plan like to build communities. He gave people the option to co-create life with him, to co just be co-creators with him, to be creative. And um, like this life that people would have had, but then choosing to discern good and evil for themselves. Because I think for a long time, it was always just like, well, God said not to eat of the tree. And it was just for the heck of it. You know, it was just to test people. And as uh, whether that's true or not, I think there's so much more meaning there of like, no, discerning good and evil apart from God, it comes with a lot of consequences and deciding to rule something for yourself apart from a good God who's morally good and righteous. And all these things that creation shows us that we, I mean, we see it every day, the consequences of that, because we choose ourselves, because we choose evil, um, because we want to promote ourselves at the expense of others, and um, we don't we don't love God and love people like the, this Jewish prayer, the Shema, which Jesus says is the greatest commandment. And this whole story unraveling of God not destroying humans, but saying, I'm still going to pursue you. I'm still going to make a way to be with you. And seeing like the the creation elements, like the garden elements that we see in the temple and um, like Jesus coming and being this person, this perfect person that we couldn't be because we chose to discern good and evil for ourselves. And then becoming those temples through the Holy Spirit and dwelling us. And like this, this whole idea that heaven and earth were united in a good place in the garden. And then we separated them and God is still choosing to like go through this process of reuniting heaven and earth again. I just talked for so long, but that has really really been meaningful in this whole discussion and whatever side I land on. I think that is just like, it has literally changed my life, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, one of the, one of my favorite parts about the, the story of the fall is that God, you know, the understanding that God could have wiped them out and did, right, would have been easy, yeah. in fact. Uh, and he chose to, you know, I mean, with the understanding that at the time he created them, he also knew this because he's God. But he knew that by not wiping them out, what that would eventually cause. It would cause, well, all of the sin that we've ever witnessed in all of our lives, right? Uh, and, and, and more, and way, way, way more. And yet he decided that, that he would use this in a way to bring glory to himself and to, uh, you know, to save humanity in, you know, through this plan that honestly, I'm way too lazy for that. <laughs> right. It's, but it's so awesome to see God, you know, like that he had the opportunity to just start over with perfect people again. He did yeah. Yeah. And his, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, I used to be so scared to read the Old Testament, <laughs> but it's something that I genuinely love, <laughs> especially like when you get into the, when you get into the law and you start to really like understand it and really confront those scary things or things that seem scary. Um, I think it, it, like, it just has really changed how I see a lot of things. And when we see the law, even, you know, like you were talking about Moses meeting God on Mount Sinai and immediately, like after God makes his covenant, like basically proposes marriage and marries the Israelite people, uh, then on the honeymoon, they cheat on him, you know, like immediately after they're making gold calves and continually God continues to, he chooses 
these people that he's made promises to. And we see that throughout, oh my gosh, like how many kings and um, the people we see in the prophetic books, like doing this very thing that we see in Genesis 3, where they're choosing themselves at the expense of others. They're uh, promoting themselves. They're like, they're not the essence of the law. They're totally disregarding to love other people and to care about them and to love God first and foremost above anything. And yet God still, like, even though we see some forms of reconciliation and, um, you know, they're the Babylonian captivity and a lot of things that happen to God's people, because at some point he intervenes and doesn't allow this evil to happen. Even when his own people commit this evil, we see him still send Jesus, you know, we, we still see how God continues to choose people, which is just wild it's wild and so not something that we find in any of those other stories not just how people were formed that it was out of like goodness and from a morally good god and not like some weird bloodshed story it it we see it just through every page of scripture and we see it in the end when we you know in revelation we really should say the revelation but um, when we see God reuniting heaven and earth and ultimately reconciling all things and like destroying evil. And I think when we're, when we have some kind of like some of our American, maybe modern, um, the ideas that we project on this, or maybe we just don't, not that we can fully understand, understand scripture, um, but when we don't understand a lot of important parts of it, we kind of, feel like all those show that God is like this harsh, cold God who just wants to get rid of people who don't look good enough for him. But that's, that's just not what we're seeing throughout from Genesis to the end. We just, we just don't see that. Well, so two things. One, uh, my favorite example of the love of God, you know, despite humanity's horrible treatment of him is uh, Hosea. The, the story of Hosea, I just, I can't even fathom that. That would just be horrible, right? To, to marry somebody who you know is going to be unfaithful to you over and over again and be commanded and required to love that person and restore them as though they had never cheated on you. It's just, I, I just don't even, I, yeah. That rubs right up against my fear of commitment. I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, but, um, uh, the other thing I was recently asked uh, why God in the Old Testament seems like an angry guy, you know, who is full of vengeance and, and um, you know, and, and brings the hammer down on people, right? And the New Testament doesn't see that. And I said, well, you heard of the story of Jonah. Yeah, and he was vaguely familiar with what why did Jonah run away, right? Why, why did Jonah run away? Because he said, well, I know that God is a loving and forgiving God, and that if I preach to the Ninevites, they might repent, and, they, and then God will forgive them, because that's who he is, and I don't want that to happen, so he ran away. And uh, the, so Jonah didn't see God as full of vengeance. Jonah saw God as full of mercy, Full of mercy to yeah. people who filleted people alive. Like, that. this is, wow. And Jonah was kind of the worst, and he was like, I knew you were going to be good. Why'd you even send me here? Because <laughs> you spared all these people. <laughs> yeah, Jonah, man, I, I did a summer series with David Oss Redcar on Jonah this, this summer, and I literally, I got a tattoo 
of a vine on my on my finger because I just the end of Jonah like as a formerly highly legalistic person Jonah just resonates with me so much <laughs> in being oh man so many things um but also I actually got oh it's I pulled up the sleeve on the wrong side uh I actually got like like I was um just talking about like creation and the new way that I've seen it, I actually got like kind of an element of like creation tattoo because I really liked uh it would take me like an hour to explain it but I really liked the idea of like seeing God's plan for heaven and earth to come back together because I haven't I hadn't heard it described like that and um uh, everybody take a shot every time I say Tim Mackey but Tim Mackey was the one that I learned that from and um there's just I think we just miss so much beauty when we when we come to it like that and I think you can ask the bible questions and say like okay god are you really are you really this angry vindictive like hateful god and if you really look for the answers I I genuinely don't think that's what you will find because those are real questions that I've asked this book and it's over and over and over again I'm seeing god's goodness be revealed through it so I think if that's those are questions you have great like really dig into this and really be open to seeing um what's there because I think we can come in with a lot of cultural baggage to these situations and not understand things. And when we look at this as um, ancient Jewish literature and we understand a lot of the really important historical elements of this, then it really helps us understand like how God is continually, uh, continually loving people and pursuing them, but also instructing them to show love and respect and honor to one another which it, it doesn't it doesn't always seem like that because some of the stuff in the law is just like what are you even talking about but to understand it in those ways um it just really helps not about creation but i just think if you have questions about it just ask them you know absolutely I, we, we were gonna that was the other topic that we were possibly going to talk about was yeah. uh uh, you know, is it okay to ask questions? And I, I've always said, and in fact, I think I was teaching a class that you were in when I said this the, for the first time is that if you're, if you're afraid to ask questions, it's because you're afraid of the answers. Oh, so good. If, That's so like, true. <laughs> That's so true, which I think is why people are like, I don't want to ask the Old Testament questions because I'm going to find a mean, ugly God, which is not what we find. But yeah, you're, I don't, and I would say, even if you are afraid, you should probably confront that. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. That's the problem is, is, you know, if you find that, if you ask the question and you find that you were wrong, then sure, you have to deal with that. And that's difficult and kind of, you know, uncomfortable. But what's the alternative? You're just wrong forever? Like, that's, yeah. that's worse. Yeah. And especially if you're teaching other, like, you're very dogmatic in your beliefs and teaching other people those beliefs that's oh that holds a lot of weight to it yeah absolutely that holds it. i think do you, you know stephanie cochran right uh no i don't think so she was uh she's at frontier but she i think she might have been uh quite a few years after you because i guess she was there when i was there so that would <laughs> that would not line up timeline wise um anyways she has uh like a group that she leads and like a I don't even know if it's like a an email or like a newsletter that she puts out. It's called the Paradox Paper in the Paradox Community. And she um, she says, if God is who he says he is, then you can ask him questions. Like God, if God is what the Bible tells us he is, like if he's loving and he's good 
and all these wonderful things about him, then we can ask him questions and we're going to find that. But if he's not, then it doesn't matter anyways, you know, none of it, none of it really matters. If right. Exactly. Him. Exactly. And, and, you know, better to find that out sooner rather than later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely been for the majority of my life have been on the side of, um, well, it, it's <laughs> a whole thing, but a lot of like the legalism and like being a part of groups or doing like quote unquote good things, uh, because I wanted to be chosen to be a counselor or chosen to be this or like be in on this group or it was, it was not out of like cultivating a genuine love for Jesus for a long time. Um, and so I think a lot of that produced like, yep, I believe it, even though in my head, a lot of times I was having major doubts, but would have never expressed it, especially to people like in my Christian groups, because those were the people I was most afraid of to be honest about it with. Um, and I don't even know where I was just going to, I was just going to go with that. But I think the point that I'm coming back to is, I think, oh, what I was going to say is, I used to be like, if it's confrontational, if it seems like it's going to end badly, I don't want to even go near it. And now I'm totally opposite where it's, oh, my dog just ripped my charger out. Uh, I think I've lost your audio. <laughs> oh, shoot. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, my my screen, I can't see myself anymore, but I guess as long as you can hear me, we're good. I can hear you and see you, yes. Although your okay. mic is different. It's different? Yes. Um, I can't move my mouse, so I'll just roll with it for now. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, for my dog's intrusion. Um, he ripped the microphone out of my computer, but... Anyways, I don't know how much of that was caught, but uh, now instead of like leaving things that are very scary to me, my approach is like, if it feels weird and it feels scary, then I want to directly know everything about it and confront it. And I don't think that's what you have to be. I think you can have questions. And uh, again, it's just like, we can trust God. And if we trust him, then we can dig into these things. And, and creation isn't one of those things that is like really, you know, feels scary or maybe threatening to, to your faith, but um, but again, it's like, if the truth is true, then it's okay if we ask questions about it, because if it is true, that's what we're going to find. And of course, there's like healthy settings to do that in, um, and maybe not as healthy settings, but I think, I think we sometimes are really afraid of honesty with these things, and, and it's okay. If we believe it, it's, it's okay that we should, we should believe that it's going to be okay. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited that you're, um, you're on the old earth side of things because I, I'm excited, you know, to, to have the conversation and, and to talk to you about it because I think it's really fascinating. And again, you know, I'm not afraid and I, I sincerely hope that you're not either because yeah. honestly, if I'm wrong, I want to know. Yeah. That's, that's exactly how I feel coming to this of like, I really hope that I know. <laughs> and it, again, it's like, we can, of course we can't know all of the, we can't understand the Bible fully. We, I don't think we can understand Genesis 1 and 2 to the full extent. If scripture is, is truly living and active, then how can, and we come back to it 
with something new every time. Like we're learning these new things or learning in more depth, maybe not a new thing, but going into more depth. How can we understand the entirety of it, right? But I, I feel the same way of like, I really, really hope that I know if I'm on the wrong side of this, as I do with like, you know, Calvinism and whatever else. I just, it, you know, if, it feels bad to be wrong sometimes, I guess, but I feel like it's worse to be wrong, like forever, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> or for lead people on that. Um, I've taken so much of your time. I, I didn't ask you uh, this last question. I went on for a million years about it, but is there anything that you want to share like the most that you haven't yet, because we kind of went into this, but the most beautiful part of Genesis 1 through 3 to you. Um, yeah, to me, and it's going to be weird. Uh, so you okay. get <laughs> um, So the end of chapter 3, which is generally not the part that people would say is beautiful about Genesis 1 through 3, but the Lord God made clothing out of, out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove man out and stationed a cherubim and, flaming, and the flaming whirling uh, sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This, to me, says God cares about them, even though they just... They, they had literally one job and they just screwed it up. Mm. God still has their best interests at heart, right? He clothes them and then he says, if they, you know, they know good and evil, they're sinful now. If they live forever, they'll be sinful forever. We can't have that happen. So we're going to protect them. And, and, and in doing so, obviously, you know, drives them out of Eden, which sounds like a punishment but again this is just god protecting these people who have just screwed up the only job that the that he gave them to do literally they had one job yeah wow i've never i've never heard anyone point that out in that way that's really interesting yeah there's um not to start a whole new tangent before we end but there's a great book um by David T. Lamb. I think I've recommended it every single podcast that so people are like, oh gosh, please shut up about this book. But it's called uh, God Behaving Badly. And he compares um, like God's holiness, God's perfection to like uranium in a way. <laughs> and uh, like you have to, you have to handle it the right way. There's these certain protocols that you, that you follow. And so we see that like in the law, but I think even in that kind of like along the lines of what you're saying, uh, like it seems so like harsh and cruel to some people to cast them out of Eden, but it really is for their benefit. And he has this plan to, to restore them, which is just, again, amazing over and over that we see this starkly different God from all the rest of these uh, people groups who are committing evil against one another and basing their actions off of these gods that are doing the same. And we see the true God of Israel who, who is just the opposite in every single way. And um, yeah, so it's just, just wild. It's crazy how you can read something so many times and, and see all these new depths to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, it reminds me of the, there's a line from uh, my favorite TV show, The Good Place, which not theologically accurate in any way, but it's so good though. <laughs> fantastic show uh, where he said, Oh, we got all six clues that you left for us. And he said, Actually, because your brains are so simple, I left you five million clues, but I'm, I'm glad that you were able oh to gosh. put it together. Right. Like that's, that's, this is kind of how I feel about God. 
is like, uh, I, I think I picked up everything that you, you had for me in these verses. You guys are actually, there's like a billion things here. But since your brain is so simple, yeah. I'm glad you were able to figure some of it out. <laughs> that's so good. That's, I don't remember that, but that's so good. <laughs> I love that. Oh, so good. Um, wow. I, I, I'm trying not to take two full hours of, of your day today. Uh, so we can wrap it up here. And maybe, maybe as we, you know, as this kind of progresses, we can, we can come back and have another conversation. Also, Mason does understand the science side of things. And he's also on this journey. So I'll bring him so he can explain uh, his, his thoughts and uh, bring some complexity to this discussion in that oh, way. That'd be great. But um, do you have, so I have a couple resources here. I didn't put any of mine for Old Earth, which I'll, I'll include in the notes. But do you have any resources that you're like, yes, if you're interested in young earth creationism, here's what you should look at. So uh, there's a, a great book, very readable by this guy, uh, Lee Strobel, called The Case for a Creator. He was a journalist. Uh, he was a law journalist for... Uh, University of Chicago, I believe, but he interviews a bunch of different uh, creation science, um, either uh, people who study creation science or, or, you know, philosophers, that kind of thing. And uh, that's actually where I was introduced to the column Cosmological Argument by uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. That is a very, it's a it's not fully comprehensive and it's it's very uh readable so it's 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 meant to be approachable and not like super super deep but it's it's a very good book it's got a wealth of of information and if you're fixing to look into young earth creationism i think that that'd be a great place to start okay great and i'll link uh there's some other here um that i just am aware of that i'll, I'll link as well but Thank you so much for taking so much of your time. And this was uh, longer than I anticipated, but I'm glad, even though we touched like barely like the tops of the mountains of these different topics, I'm glad that we got to cover kind of a variety of things and um, get into to all of these, all of these different very fascinating topics that I hope just compels people to, you know, could care less if you agree with any of these theories that we've presented, but to really read your Bible and um, just, just ask honest questions about these things and and see who God is throughout them. So hopefully that's uh, that encourages people to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, a pleasure talking with you. Yes, thanks so much, Siggy. I'll see you later. See ya. Hey friends, I hope that you loved that podcast interview. So fun, so interesting. I love this topic. It is, it just makes your brain run 100 miles a minute and there's so many things to think about, which I hope that that kind of leaves you with uh, just some time to like sit and think. And the Bible is something that we really should like deeply ponder. So I hope that that gives us kind of an avenue to do this. So I really want to give some notes. So if you stick around for a minute, I'll give you some of the notes that we didn't really get to. Uh, so my approach when I came to this was I wanted to look at a lot of the ancient stories, the ancient creation stories, especially those that date, at least by manuscript or cuneiform text or whatever we have um, that remains of those stories. I wanted to look at how they date the Bible or the manuscripts that we have of scripture and why that's not a scary thing and also why it gives a lot of meaning to the story of Genesis. Now, again, I'll say 
you don't have to be an old earth creationist to appreciate the symbolism and the beauty and the deep meaning there. It's not um, mutually exclusive to that. I think you can stand on any side of this and really pay attention to those details. And I think as God is this beautiful artist and creator, then absolutely he could make things happen literally and have this symbolic meaning. So uh, I mentioned the Babylonian creation story in Numa Elish, Seven Tablets of Creation. You can just Google that, but if you want to see it in full, you can look at this article by Joshua J. Mark called Enuma Elish, the Babylonian Epic of Creation, full text by the World Encyclopedia. Joshua J. Mark does a lot of writing on these ancient creation stories. So most of the articles I'm going to recommend you are by him. You can look at the Epic of Gilgamesh in more detail. You just search his article, Gilgamesh, Joshua J. Mark again. I believe he also, uh, that's where he talks about the Sumerian myth, Enlil and Ninlil. And he has a lot of links in these articles to other articles as well. And you can probably just search his name and find some more. I mentioned that Met Museum article by Iris Barr, Mesopotamian Creation Myths. The Egyptian story is really fascinating. And like I said, a lot of changes. Like it seems like a lot more than these other civilizations, probably because the Egyptian civilization lasted so long. And especially when you live in these ancient societies where uh, like the, the governing ruler is also a religious figure that has a lot of influence on things. And especially when you get in like the Ptolemaic dynasties and things totally change, then uh, this, this story changes a lot and gets dropped and picked up and all these things. So you can search ancient Egyptian mythology. Joshua J. Mark has an article titled that, Ancient Egyptian Mythology. And there's a lot in there. You can search uh, throughout the different dynasties and see some specifics and how they change Roman mythology and actually the Greek philosophers, they relied a lot on Egyptian mythology to kind of influence their ideas and uh, kind of form their own mythologies and things like that. The philosophers, not as much mythology, but were kind of influenced by the afterlife belief of the Egyptians. So you can look at those societies as well. There's this website, it's a French website, so it's called Mille en Tasse, but it's 1001 Cups is the name of it. And I don't know if this is an article or just like this, uh, like a blog post, but it's called, in all caps, the endless fights between sun god Ra and the great serpent god Apep, in parentheses Apophis, in the underworld are representations of the grand gallery impactor operating cycle of the Great Pyramid of Khufu, copyright 2021 by Bruno Corsal. That's the full name. If you want to look that up, I would just search Bruno Corsal, uh, like pyramid operating cycle or sun god Ra, APEP, something like that. And you can actually see some images, uh, like original images from these ancient Egyptians who depicted this fight between the serpent and the sun god and why that's, you know, we talked about why the imagery is pretty, pretty relevant when we look at these other stories and also to scripture that we have this, you know, there's a serpent and fighting someone who's doing something good. And, um, Man, I'm trying not to like go so deep right now because I want to make this quick so you can just take these and, and run. But very, very interesting. So look up that article, if nothing else, for the photos um, of the art. It's I think that it's translated from French, my guess. So it might be a little tricky to read, but worth worth a few minutes of your time. So we also talked a little bit about this idea of... Uh, that there's some kind of division between the earth and a lot of ancient people believe that there was water underneath of the earth and then there was water that was above the sky, like something solid was holding it in place. 
I wish that we had time to talk about this more because this actually informs a lot of the reason why I lean more towards old earth creationism. But uh, you can search, I mentioned the Hebrew word home and uh, see how that kind of connects to uh, like the primordial sea. And then we see the term water above. Uh, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible has a lot on this idea. I think it's pretty solidified, in my opinion, in history and in a lot of these ancient cultures um, that they believed in this idea of some kind of dome, or you can actually search the Egyptian photo for the god Newt, or goddess Newt, um, and she, there's like this picture of her doing basically like, uh, she's like arching her back and she's holding up stars and it it really depicts this idea. There's a lot of ancient studies that it seems like as we see depicted in their art and some of their creation documents or just other literature that this is a pretty well-established thing. But like I mentioned that article uh, by by Justin Taylor and that book by Vern Pothris, Pothris, um, that people dispute this. Uh, yeah, I would just look into this if, you're, if you have questions about it and you wanna see more. I think I mentioned everything while we were going through, um, while we were going through the podcast. But you can search for, uh, actually, in scripture, if you want to kind of explore this idea a little bit more and see where some theologians think that we can see the idea for the rakia, the vault. That it's maybe some kind of unspecified material, but something solid standing between um, the sky and the water above. You can look at Ezekiel 1, 25 through 26. And you can also look at uh, the idea that maybe mountains are holding up this water above in Job 26, 11, 1 Samuel 2, 8, and sec, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 14, verse 5. The Hebrew word mastuk for pillar or support is used. We can see that as well. So I'm trying not to go into a whole nother podcast right now. So that's why this feels a little, uh, little choppy and abrupt. But I am just super happy that we got to have this whole conversation. You can also look at uh, people's different opinions about Genesis chapter one versus chapter two, et cetera, et cetera. So fascinating things. This is a really great chance to have a conversation with people you disagree with if you want to talk about this more. And I really hope that this, if nothing else, encourages you to just dig into the story, but also take away the meaning because like I said, anyone can find the deep and beautiful meaning of being a person created with inherent value in the image of God and seeing that this story, like, like the rest of scripture, points to Jesus. Oh, before I go, the Bible Project was a huge influence on Genesis for me and also for getting the tattoo that I showed. So uh, I actually started putting this together before I found the Bible Project episodes on it. I've listened to like a few of them right before we recorded this. So uh, if you go to the Bible Project, episode 250, I think, starts on the creation series. 251 actually does all the work for you. So they will, they detail a lot of these stories that we talked about. And, uh, and I don't remember if they do any more, but you can just go and they'll give you kind of a summary of this. And Tim Mackey does a great job of explaining it with his, um, understanding of the ancient world. And then I believe that they have up to like six or seven episodes on this. And Tim Mackey has an episode called Faith and Science on his podcast, uh, My Strange Bible, or Understanding My Strange Bible. And that's a really, really influential episode, I think, for myself. If you want to really push the limits of um, what you think, or just kind of feel a little stretched, you could listen to a podcast called... Um, Oh gosh, what's it called? It's by Pete Enns. 
and Jared Bias. I, I have talked about it before and I called him Mark Bias. His name is Jared. So sorry, Jared, because I know you're listening. Um, <laughs> it's called the Bible for normal people. And so they have a lot of different podcast episodes on these topics like cosmology and matter and consciousness and things that relate to this. So if you want to feel really stretched, uh, it's not a podcast that I land on the same page with them most of the time, but I really like that they have really strong answers for why they believe what they believe and that they don't put God or the Bible in a, a box of what we think it should be, but really letting it tell us what it is and understanding it and appreciating it for that. So again, it's not that you have to believe everyone that you listen to, but if we're meditating on scripture and that's what we're focusing on and the Holy Spirit of God revealing the truth of scripture to us and removing ourselves and the focus of ourselves away from the interpretation of scripture, then I think that it's okay for us to, to listen to people we disagree with. We don't have to be in a scary cult mindset where we're, we're afraid of hearing things. We have strong minds. Um, through the Holy Spirit of God, we have self-control and the strength to exhibit that self-control, and we can listen to people we disagree with. So hopefully that's what this encourages to you, you to do. I hope that you have a great day, and I hope that you like this podcast. Thank you.